beginning in verse 8. Psalm 16, verse 8. I have set the Lord always before me, because He is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. David says, I have set the Lord always before me. So my question this morning, have you? Have you set the Lord always before you? Now David sets the Lord in two ways before him. First, in a way that the Lord is the one that keeps him from moving. The word move means to totter, to shake. It speaks of a person walking and tottering, and it looks like at any moment they're going to collapse and fall, like a tottering toddler. When they just learn to walk, it looks as if every step is going to be the step where they collapse and fall. David is experiencing some life events. We don't know the occasion of this psalm. Something is potentially moving David to fall, fall into sin, fall away from the Lord. So he has the Lord set before him. But secondly, and we'll note first the word set, means to counterbalance. So how does David keep from being moved? To counterbalance means to set one weight against another to stabilize or to equalize something. So David feels the potential of moving and falling, but he counterbalances being off balance with having the Lord set before him. Beloved, we live in a culture that is off balance. It's upside down. In fact, it is collapsing. Will you collapse with it? Will you be stable in an unstable world? Will you collapse in a collapsing world? Not if you have the Lord set before you. Because He is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. But secondly, He has the Lord set before Him as the one that would rise from the dead. We just read in Acts chapter 2 when Peter took this text in Psalm 16, he knew there's something about it that could not apply to David. David, when he wrote these words, knew there's something I'm saying that's not about me. What did Peter say? Brethren, let me freely speak to you of the patriarch David, that he is dead and buried in his sepulcher, his grave is with us today. David can't be talking about himself because his body saw corruption. In fact, his grave is with us somewhere on the planet today. But he was a prophet, Peter said, and he knew that God had sworn an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He seeing before spake of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. David has the Messiah set before him. The one who would raise himself from the dead on behalf of David. So that makes it very applicable, this Old Testament psalm, this resurrection psalm to us today on what we call Resurrection Sunday. Today we're going to look at eight things that David had set before him. He had the Messiah... He didn't know fully all about the Messiah like we do today, but he had him set before him so that he would not be shaken, he would not fall, he would not be moved, he would be counterbalanced, he would be stable in whatever forces are moving into David's life that seek to cause him to fall, cause him collapse. Do you ever feel like you're ready to fall? Do you ever feel like you are about to collapse? Well, here are eight ways that David looked at the coming Messiah. 
that kept him from being moved. Not being shaken at all, but moved to the degree of falling away from God. So let's begin in verse 1. And the first one, he set the Lord always before him as his refuge. Preserve me, O God, for in thee do I put my trust. The word preserve means to keep or to guard. It's a word picture of someone that's defenseless. And a garrison comes in and surrounds them and protects them from some kind of evil. In verse 2, David speaks of his soul. He sees God as the guardian of his soul. But notice how David makes his request to God. Notice his logic when he appeals to God. Preserve me, O God, because in you do I make my refuge. The word trust is a refuge, a place of shelter, a place of sanctuary, a place of hiding. Is Jesus your refuge? Now, a few things we observe here. First of all, he doesn't make his request based on himself. He could have no confidence in such a request. In other words, he doesn't say, Lord, protect me, guard me, because I'm not like the kings of the Amorites. I mean, those guys are bad. I'm not like the Philistine kings. I'm not like the Amorite kings. I'm not like the Amalekite kings. You know, Lord, I'm not that bad a guy. God won't hear prayers like that. You know, that was the proud Pharisee in Luke 18. Lord, I thank Thee that I'm not like other men. See, if Dave were to to reason like that, what he would be saying is, Lord, I'm not like those kings, which means I've done some pretty good things for You. God will not hear a prayer that the basis of our request is our performance. Lord, I've, I've prayed a lot. I think I've done a lot for Your kingdom. I mean, I've served You for many, many years. And not like those people over there. No, David's confidence in having the Lord set before him is he says, Lord, <clears throat> guard me because you're my guardian. Protect me because you're my protector. Be my sanctuary because, in fact, you are my sanctuary. So he puts the performance on God himself and not on David in any way. That gives David confidence that God would hear his request. When you have the Lord set always before you, you're not bringing performance to God. You're bringing your need to God, right? This is what gives God glory. Look at how David reasons this way in Psalm 31. Turn to Psalm 31. Verse 1, in thee, O Lord, I'm in Psalm 31, verse 1, in thee, O Lord, do I put my trust, now that's a parallel statement, the word trust is refuge, it's the same Hebrew word. In thee, O Lord, you're my refuge, let me never be ashamed, deliver me in thy righteousness. Verse 2, bow down thine ear to me, deliver me speedily, be thou my strong rock for an house of defense to save me. Why? Because you are my rock. And my fortress. Therefore, for thy name's sake, lead me and guide me. Now, in verse 2 and 3, David reasons the same way in Psalm 16. Be my rock, be my fortress. The word defense and fortress is the same Hebrew word, which means castle. Lord, be my castle, be my rock, because you are my castle, you are my rock. Now, if God is David's castle, that means David is helpless. If God is David's rock, that means David is a weakling. 
And you get the point. God is magnified not by strong people, not by people that have it all together, not by people that are rock-like, but people that are weak-like spiritually. So don't bring your performance, don't bring your rock-likeness to God. He won't have it. Bring your helplessness, your neediness, which is the way David is reasoning, and God gets magnified, and we get what? The fortress rock-like help of Jesus Christ. Now David is making this request in such a way that he asked God to do it righteously and that God would do it for his namesake. Now the question is, how could God deliver David in a way that's not right? Is that possible? Yes, it is. And no, it's not. Yes, it's possible For God to deliver David in a way that's wrong, if God does it for any other reason than what? Therefore, for thy name's sake, lead me and guide me. It would not be right for God. If God is to deliver anybody, He will do it for His name's sake and His righteousness' sake, because God is a God-centered God. And so, it is possible in the sense that if God were to do it that way, it would be wrong, but it's not possible. Because God will never, ever save, deliver, or be a fortress for anyone in any other way except the way that exalts His name. And again, how does that happen? You're weak, and He's the castle. You're helpless, and He's the strong man. See, if you were to seek refuge in a tornado here in Huntsville... And uh, you went into the shelter and you emerged safely and the news reporters came and said, how did you make it? Did, did you do something heroic to save yourself? Well, I just sat in the bunker. No, no, what did you do? Did you do anything? Well, I listened to the radio while the storm was going. No, no, was there anything you did to save yourself? Well, I slept at night, got up in the morning at 8, and I just sat there. It was the bunker. It was the sanctuary. It was the fortress. It was the rock that saved me. Well, who gets all the glory? It's the bunker. It's the rock. It's the fortress. It's God who delivers righteously, and God delivers for His name's sake. Now, beloved, what that means is, we set the Lord always before us, we set Jesus Christ and His resurrection before us, our confidence in Christ is not just to say, well, I know He's a rock, while you build your own bunker. Jesus addressed that in Matthew chapter 7, didn't He? He that heareth my sayings and doeth them not, I will liken him unto a man that built his house upon the sand. And the floods came, and the winds blew, and the flood came, and the rain came, and it beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of that house. How many people on this Resurrection Sunday are hearing a sermon and thinking, I believe that. I believe Jesus is a rock. He's a fortress. He's mighty. I even believe He is who He said He is. He is God in the flesh. But they don't ever run into the bunker. They just know something about Jesus, but they never ever go into the rock. That's like having a community tornado shelter by your house, and the storm comes, and you say, I know that's a strong shelter. I know it's got thick walls. I know it must be powerful. But when the storm comes, you ride it out in your own house. What's going to happen? Your house is going to fall, and great will be the fall of it. 
No, David doesn't have the Lord set before him as some, some mighty tower that he just looks at and says, that must be strong. He is in it. He's resting there. He's abiding in the presence of God's sanctuary. And so his argument is, Lord, be my guardian, because that's what you've always been for me. You see? Lord, be my castle, because you've always been my castle. And beloved, on the, on the day of judgment, nothing will penetrate the refuge, Jesus Christ. Not an accusation against you by the devil. Not a sin that he may bring up. Because it's all been paid by the blood of Jesus Christ. And the proof of that is what? He is risen. He is not here. Come and see where the Lord lay. Are you in the castle of Jesus Christ? Are you resting, sweetly resting, in the the cliff once made for you? Jesus bids you come into His castle-like presence and stay there. And rest in the resurrection of who He is. Set the Lord before you. And it will make you stable in a collapsing world. It will make you stable in a world that's upside down. It will make you stable. Not because you are. Not because you're rock-like. Because you fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before you. Which hope we have as an anchor of the soul. Both sure and steadfast. Which entereth into the veil within. Whether the forerunner hath for us entered. And what's his name, church? Jesus. And how did he get there? Resurrection from the dead. Number two in our text. Verse two O my soul, thou hast said unto the Lord, Thou art my Lord. David has the Lord set before him, the one that would rise from the dead on his behalf, not only as his refuge, but as his master. Now this is the one that probably most likely gives us the most trouble. David uses three words for God. First, Ael in verse 1. O God. That speaks of God's created power, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God, Ael, created. His massive power. Second word, Lord, all caps, Jehovah. The self-existing, the independent God. Now, if God is the independent God, what does that make you? You're the dependent person. That's how God gets glory. But thirdly, he uses the word Lord, cap L, rest lowercase, Adonai. Whenever Adonai is used in the Old Testament, it speaks first of his reverence and then Speaks of submission. My soul has said to Yahweh, You are my master. Is he yours? Do you have Jesus Christ set before you as your master? We know what that means. It means he tells you, he commands you how to live your life. Oh, beloved, you're not in the sanctuary. Until he's your master. I know people try to claim that to be true. It sounds like a nice thought, doesn't it? If I could just have him for my paradise. But this master thing, I don't want any part of it. He's both. You can't have one without the other. I was reading an article just this past week 
about Easter, and the caption is, Is Easter more about resurrection or retail? $20 billion was predicted to be spent leading up to Easter. Candy, gifts, Sunday clothes. I happened to be in a department store this past week and I heard, overheard one of the people working there and said, this, this is going to be a crazy week. I was like, really? Like, yeah. People are coming in and buying stuff for Easter. Just, just buying it off the shelves. $20 billion. But only about 37% plan to attend church today. 37% of the people cannot spend $20 billion, right? In London every year, during what's called Holy Week this past week, on Good Friday, thousands of people crowd into Trafalgar Square in London and they watch a play depicting the crucifixion of Christ while only 6% of the adults claim to be practicing Christians. Now here's my question. What on earth is a non-practicing Christian? I need help with that one. That's like saying, I'm a non-living, living person. It doesn't exist. I'm a non-Christian who's a Christian. They don't exist in the Bible. Yet, thousands of people will claim Christianity as a non-practicing Christian. Now, here's the question. Why would anybody even want to be a non-practicing Christian? I'll tell you why. Because I can claim paradise, but I'm just not going to practice this thing that Jesus is my master. I'm not going to do that. Then that's not a Christian. I hope we understand that. See, a non-practicing Christian does not want to submit to Adonai, who is Jesus Christ. They don't want any part of it. I like the idea of paradise. I mean, that sounds great, Right? But I'm going to live life on my own terms. Nobody's going to tell me how to live my life. Now does that characterize you this morning? David said, I have the Lord always set before me. I have Adonai set before me. He is my master. Now let's hear what some of the writers of the New Testament and Jesus himself says about him being master. Number one, Peter again in Acts chapter 2. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly, without any doubt, that God hath made this same Jesus that you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Curios, which is the New Testament equivalent to Adonai, Master and Savior. Now, in reality, you don't make Him Lord of your life. God has made Him Lord. That's got nothing to do with you. So we not make Him Lord of our life? Yes, but you're only going to agree what God has done. God has made that same Jesus, whether no one does. He has made Him both Lord and Christ. Okay, Peter, what now? You repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You come under Lordship. How? Repentance. You don't keep living your life on your own terms. You don't keep doing life your own way. You come under the master of everything because God has made him master. And there's your assurance that the resurrection is yours. There's your deep assurance 
that Jesus is really yours. Not, not that you, you are uh, perfectly under His Lordship, but, but that's where you are. We're talking about a pathway. That will show me the path of life. See? It's not about imperfection, perfection. It's about, I'm on the pathway of obedience or I'm not. See, that's the question. Listen to Paul in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, speaking about the gospel, speaking about Christ's resurrection. He said that Jesus Christ was declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. So, Christ's resurrection proved He is God. It was declared that He was exactly everything He said He was. How? The tomb is empty. Number two, His resurrection proved that it was according to the Spirit of holiness. What does that mean? Likely it means that Jesus was holy. He was absolutely righteous with no sin, or the Spirit would have left Him in the grave, rotting today. He is not there. He's risen. Why? Because He's holy. He's perfect. He's impeccable. He is holy. He is harmless. He's without sin, according to the Spirit of holiness. By the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Verse 5. By whom, that is by Christ, we have received grace and apostleship for the obedience of faith among all nations for His namesake. Alright, two things here. He was raised from the dead for the obedience of faith, which means what? We're justified by faith. It's not by works, it's not by performance, it's not anything you've done. The resurrection of Jesus Christ has brought salvation freely to you through His redemption. Without anything you could ever do. You receive it by faith. Secondly, the resurrection is for the obedience that comes from faith. Now that means your obedience could never justify you. could never save you. Obedience is not the root of your salvation. Obedience is the necessary fruit. I'm going to say that again. Obedience is a necessary fruit of salvation. Because if there's no fruit of obedience hanging on the tree, what's wrong with the root? It's dead. Right? If there's no fruit that ever hangs on the tree called salvation, but just never a piece of fruit of obedience, the tree is dead. But when there's fruit, just some fruit on the tree called obedience, what does that mean? There's a living union. With the Lord Jesus Christ who's raised from the dead. The root system is united to Christ by faith. So the fruit that's coming. Some 30, some 60, some 100. Is the fruit of Christ's resurrection. What's the scope of that? Among all nations. Romans 1.5. What's the aim of this fruit? For His name's sake. For the glory of the risen, exalted, resurrected the Lamb of God. So David, when he has the Lord set always before him, what's the result? God is his master. Da- David's a sinner. Read the Old Testament Psalms. Read the life of David. You see a man that's a great sinner, but you see a man that has a great Savior. And he comes under that Savior again and again that Jesus or that God, looking forward to the coming Messiah, was his Adonai, his master. Now let's see what Jesus says about himself concerning being a master in John chapter 13. Turn there. The resurrection is all about obedience. The resurrection is all about love. 
Now, traditionally, this past week is called Holy Week. That has its origins in about the 4th century A.D. And during Holy Week, some Christians observe certain activities. Now, Holy Week is not commanded, so it's not an issue of right versus wrong. It's an issue of you may or you may not. Not a commandment. No commandment in the Bible to observe Holy Week. So you may or you may not. Now, on Thursday of Holy Week, it's called Monday Thursday. Monday Thursday, rather. comes from the, the Latin word. I tried to get help on pronouncing this, so I'm just going to do it the wrong way. Mandatum. You Latin people, sorry. But I think you can hear a little bit in that, the English word what? Mandate. Monday Thursday is Mandate Thursday. You know why? Because the Master gave a mandate during Holy Week on Thursday with his disciples, when he partook of communion, the Last Supper, when he washed the saints' feet. Let's see, first of all, in John 13, verse 12. This is supposedly Thursday. This is the last week of Jesus' life. He's moving to crucifixion. He's moving to resurrection. So after he had washed their feet and had taken his garments and was set down again, he said unto them, Know know ye what I have done to you? 13. You call me Master and Lord. And you say, well, for so I am. Now, first of all, what does Jesus say about Himself? I am your Master, and I'm your Lord. What you said was right. What are the implications of that? You call me Master and Lord, you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done unto you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, verse 16 of John 13, The servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If you know these things, happy are you if you practice them. Do them. Interestingly, there are more and more Christians on Monday, Thursday that are washing each other's feet to commemorate the example Jesus gave us in John 13. And they also partake of communion. Now, if we just take the principle that Jesus gave, and it expands beyond what He did in the Last Supper, what's Jesus saying? I'm Lord and Master, which means what? You ought to do what I say. And the irony of it is that a non-practicing Christian will not do what Jesus says. Why? Because they don't think they'll be happy. Wow! Isn't that interesting? I think I'll be happy with paradise. No, you won't. If you're not happy with Jesus here, you'll never be happy with ages and ages and ages with Him. Because there's a heart problem. So the non-practicing Christian, which is not a Christian at all, says, well, I don't want to submit to the Master because I don't think that will make me happy. But Jesus says, when I'm your master and you submit, what happens? You'll be blessed. You'll find spiritual happiness. Now I want to ask you, church, who is right? The non-practicing sinner, Christian, so-called, or the Lord of glory? Who will you believe this morning? And then what is the mandate on this Maundy Thursday, as it's called traditionally today? Verse 33, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You shall seek me, and as I said unto the Jews, whether I go, you cannot come, so now I say to you. You can't come by reason of death, burial, and resurrection. That's Jesus' work alone. Verse 34, a new commandment, a new mandate I give unto you, 
That ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one to another. Christ's great mandate as your master is love. It's love. See, if David has the Lord always set before him, even in the Old Testament, he's going to love. Is Jesus your master? Are you on the pathway of loving your neighbor? What does Jesus mean here, as I have loved you? Well, it means two things, I think. One, He means, as you've seen me love, surely Christ is the example of perfect love. We should follow that example. But I think He means something deeper. And He pulls this out in John 15. It's the same day. This is Mandate Thursday. Jesus is Master and Lord. And Jesus is saying, if I'm your Master and Lord... That means you're submitting to His Lordship. You're you're on the pathway of obedience. Your car is on, on the pathway of submission to Adonai, your Lord. So in John 15, Jesus says this, As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue in my love. Kind of uses that phrase again. As the Father has loved me, as I have loved you, stay in my love. Abide, remain in it. And what, what, Jesus, what Jesus doesn't mean there... He doesn't mean keep loving me. He means stay in possession of my love for you. As I have stayed in possession of my Father's love for me. What will be the upshot? Embrace God's love for you in Christ. The upshot's in the next verse. If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love as I kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. See? Jesus is in the perfect embrace and possession of the Father's love. What's the upshot? He keeps commandments. If you remain in possession of His love for you. Oh, not your love for Him. That's a weak thing, isn't it? No, if you, if you remain in the embracing possession, if you abide in Christ's love for you, then the, the, the outflow will be obedience to His Lordship. How does that happen? Well, the next verse, I'm in John 15. In my head, I don't know what verse I'm in. If you turn there, you'll find these words. John 15. These things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and your joy might be full. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Mandate Thursday. When you hold on to the possession of Christ's love, you will find joy. And out of that joy, you will be able to to obey commands, to love others. It's a necessary prerequisite of loving others. Or you'll just use others. See? Stay in my love. As I have loved you. Then go out and love others. And the experience of abiding in the vine is joy. And that's in our psalm, isn't it? In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Adonai is is not an overlord. He's a great Savior. He's a glorious Savior. And His love is superior. It's delightful. And it will sustain your soul. I have the Lord always set before me, David says. That means you're my Adonai. You're my Lord. My soul said to the Lord, you are my master. 
So he comes under the master's love, and it's like a waterfall of grace in his life. And that it so waters his soul that it goes out in keeping commandments and loving others. Number three in our text. David said, O my soul, thou hast said unto the Lord, Thou art my Adonai, my goodness extendeth not to thee, but to the saints that are in the earth, and to the excellent in whom is all my delight. Next, he has the Lord set before him as his goodness, as his goodness. My goodness The italicized word, as you know, means that the translators in this version, KJV, supplied the word and they let you know by italics to add clarity. My goodness does not extend to you. To extend means to hold out to someone. Other versions might say, I have no goodness apart from you. My goodness is not moving in your direction. My goodness is not extending or being held out to you. Which implies two things. First of all, David has no good apart from God. I mean, what is he going to offer God? He has nothing good. If David could put his finger on any good thing in his life, genuinely, it's really good. It's from God. When you have the Lord always set before you, You understand your goodness is not toward God. It's all flowing down toward you. Now how will that help David not be moved? Because sometimes we go before the Lord when we're experiencing pain and threats and sorrows and losses. And you you think maybe beneath it all, somewhere in your your conscience and soul, Lord, I, I I thought I was doing good. I was trying to be a good person. What's wrong with that? Nothing. Except now you're extending your goodness to God. Because you're reasoning, Lord, I thought I was good, which meant this equation would equal this and not that. Oh, how subtle it is that we often think that way. Just before we know it, we say, why, Lord? What does that mean? It means I didn't think you would do that to me. What does that mean? Because I thought I was serving you. So David can have stability when he has the Lord always set before him. When he's not thinking, my goodness extends to you. Somehow I should be getting some reward because of my goodness. When in fact, I don't have any goodness apart from you, Lord. You are my highest good. Look at Psalm 14 that we read this morning. It's on the same opening in my Bible. Where David speaks about the fact that there's no one that even does any good. We know that Paul quotes from Psalm 14 in Romans chapter 3 when he's talking about the depravity of man. And universally there's no one that does good. How can that be? You look around the planet, surely somebody has done good. And of course we know Paul and David are speaking of sinners apart from the grace of God. Just left unto ourselves. No one does good. This is what he says in verse 1. The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. None there just means, as he says later, not one. 
Why? Verse 2. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. Now let's settle the issue on this right now. For those people that think what God did, He looked down through the annals of time and He saw who would choose Him on the basis of faith. Now if you're going to choose God on the basis of faith, you've got to understand and faith is seeking God. So God tells us that He did look down. He, he made a wide scoping look to all humanity. To see if anyone did understand and if anyone did seek the Lord. So that's it. Settle the question for you right now, right here. What's God's answer? They are all, they are all, they are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Now, David and Paul do this because they don't want people to think they're embellishing. I know what you mean, David. You mean all in a general sense, a lot of people. No, no, no. I mean not a single person. That's staggering, isn't it? See, because we don't think of goodness like God does, do we? See, Jesus was resurrected so that you could have goodness. That you could be good. Because without the resurrection, nobody does anything good. Because we think of good as people that do good to other people. Isn't that good? Well... Yes, I, I would certainly call that good. But the question is, what does God call good? You've all heard that expression when somebody wants to commend someone for being good. They'll say, well, that man will give you the shirt off of his back. They mean, that is a giving person. Now, I call that good. Especially if that good is directed toward me. I'd say that's good. But God has this question for that man. Why would you give the shirt off your back? That means everything to God. Why? You see, the word good here means selfless devotion. And so when God looks at all humanity, He knows it's selfish devotion. See? Because God's definition of good is when you understand His supremacy. And you understand His worth. And you understand His value. And you understand His glory. Which nobody does. There's none that understood God. That's the implication. When you understand His worth and His glory, you seek God. Verse 2 says, nobody understands. God implied nobody seeks God. So nobody does good. Which means when you give the shirt off of your back without faith in Christ, you're doing it for a selfish devotion to yourself. I mean, I'd like to have my name in the paper that I gave the shirt off my back, wouldn't you? Something about me would. I'd like everybody to glory in me and say, Mike Stewart, man, that guy, I'll, I'll do such good things. It has nothing to do with a selfless devotion to God. It has everything to do with a selfish devotion. See, good according to God is not defined as we define it. <clears throat> it's when He's at the center of it. It's when it's motivated by God's glory. It's when it's seeking to display the glory of God in giving the shirt off my back. Then God looks and says, that's good. Any other reason, any other reason under the planet is bad. Now where do you get your goodness? Do you think your goodness extends to God? Oh no, beloved, it comes from God. This is what Jesus pointed out about the rich young ruler in Matthew 19, isn't it? 
Remember, he came running to Jesus and said, Good master, what good thing must I do that I may inherit eternal life? Jesus said, Why are you calling me good? There is none good but God. Now, that's a good question. Why do you think he called him good? Well, because Jesus is God, right? Nope. He didn't know that. That's not why he said it. He said, Good master, what good thing must I do? Because he thought he was good. And he would extend his goodness to God, and he would get the reward that he was after. Now let's test the rich young ruler's heart by the words of Jesus and see if it was selfless devotion or selfish devotion. You know the story Jesus says, you know the law, you know the second table, don't you? Love your neighbors yourself. I mean, honor your mother and father, don't take your neighbor's wife, don't take his property, don't steal, don't take his life, don't kill him. Don't take his reputation, don't bear false witness, and don't take his house, don't covet. All those I've kept from my youth up. See, this man thinks he's good. What do I lack? Well, Jesus said, well, in fact, there's one thing you do lack. And it has relationship to this idea of you thinking you're good. Sell all that you have. Give to the poor. Take up your cross. Follow me. And you'll have treasure in heaven. Now we find out the man's not good. Every good thing, quote, that he'd ever done was with a selfish devotion to his treasure. So when Jesus says, give up your treasure. If you want to do good to people, if you're a good guy, give it all away. He couldn't. Because he is not good by definition. And let me let you in on a little secret. You're not either, and I'm not either, except God make us good. The fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth. And the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 is goodness. See, David sees the Lord always set before him, so he's not bringing goodness to God. He knows that goodness is derived from God. God is good. And He makes people good by the new birth. And gives them faith so they can see the goodness of God in Christ and His gospel. And then out of that goodness from God, what happens? We're able then to extend real goodness to people. Real goodness. A goodness that is not man-centered and me-centered when we love our neighbor, but that has an understanding of who God is and is seeking God in all the good we do. Now, how much, how much of the time is your goodness like that? Aren't you glad Jesus was raised from the dead? <laughs> Aren't you glad He took all your sins? They were laid upon Him. And He bore them satisfactorily Vindicating God's wrath because He's not in the tomb. So all those times when I thought I was doing good, or maybe I knew I wasn't doing it the right way, in my repentance, we have a mighty Savior who is Jesus Christ. Do you have the Lord set before you? And then the last part of this point this morning, we'll have to finish up this afternoon, is there's a corollary to this truth. A corollary is a, a proposition that's just been proven. I think we did that from Psalm 14. If there's any goodness, we don't extend it to God. 
It comes from God. In other words, God is not asking anybody for help. He's, he's not like in a, these employers in our day that are having trouble hiring people and they've got help wanted signs everywhere. We need help. We'll give you a bonus. God will never ask for your help because He needs none. See? He's not going to ask you, could you do your part to be good and I'll supply the rest. No, every good and every perfect gift cometh down from the fathers of lights in whom is no variable, neither shadow of turning. So here's the corollary. Verse 3, but to the saints that are in the earth and to the excellent in whom is all my delight. See, David's goodness that comes from God does extend somewhere where? To the saints that are on the earth. Why would David refer to what Zephaniah says about the saints? I will leave in the midst of thee a poor and afflicted people, and they shall trust in the name of the Lord. Why would David delight in poor afflicted people and call them noble and excellent because they're Christ's saints that's why holy ones this idea about sainthood among some groups is patently false if you're a believer you are a saint by the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ now you haven't arrived to all that a saint will be yet But right now, Jesus sees you as His Holy One because His blood purchased you. How should we view one another then as saints? How does David look at the saints when he looks at the Holy One, God Himself, the coming Messiah, and he has the Lord set before him? He has a tenderness in his heart towards the people of God. How do you view the people in this room? Are these the excellent in the earth? Are these the ones we delight with? If not, there's a, there's a problem, isn't there? See, we're not viewing God's people as God views them. Yes, I know saints have a hard time getting along sometimes. Yes, there's some huge warts And sometimes we can be downright irritating to each other, right? I mean, David's not overlooking that. David knows. But because they're the saints of Jesus, they're His sheep. They belong to God. They are excellent. And He takes delight. Jesus loves His sheep. And you should see them as Jesus does. That's when Paul went to Corinth, to this church that was having massive problems. It's not a church that you would have said, hey, I want to be a member here. Massive problems. Paul said, I'm writing to the church, which is at Corinth, under the sanctified. He called them saints. Boy, that, that, that gave him a window, a lens in which to view this church. He could have been upset. These, these wretched people causing me pain in my life. They're going after false apostles when I was the apostle that was there to beget them with the gospel originally. No, they're saints. They're saints. And he says, I thank God for the grace that has been given to you in Jesus Christ. You have to look for grace, beloved. Now, I know sometimes in my life it may be. I, I'm not seeing much grace. But when you're looking through the lens of grace, it humbles you. And you see that, yeah, that, that's a, that church, they're saints there. They belong to Jesus, and Jesus loves them. So that, that gave direction to Paul's approach to the church. 
How do you view the people in this room? Is it like people you could be done away with? I know when it comes to hobbies and stuff like that, we've got this myriad differences here. But, but in Christ, David looks at them different. Have you ever wondered why Jesus hanging on the cross in agony and pain and suffering? He's been beaten. He's been up all night. He's been through a mockery of a trial. He's scourged. He's bleeding. He's carried his cross. He's got a crown of thorns on his head. And he's about to bear the wrath of God. All that suffering is, is minuscule to what is about to happen to Jesus. Father, if it be possible, take this cup from me. That was a right thing for Jesus to say. Why would he want to be separated from the Father that he loved? If he had said, give me the drink, no big deal. You know, it's no big deal to be separated from you. The God in whom he had loved and treasured for eternity. He was about to be separated. Father, if it be possible, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will but thine. During that agony, he has to position himself in such a way to push up on his legs and get enough breath to say to a no good thief, This day thou shalt be with me in paradise. Why waste your breath on such a man? Because that man was a saint of God. And Jesus loved him with all his heart. Can I say that about Jesus? He wanted to say those words. Whatever pain it took to breathe those words. After the thief had a change of heart about who Jesus was. You're going to be with me today, which means what? I'm going to raise myself from the dead, and you're going to see my glory. Jesus said about that man and about all his saints in John 17, 24, Father, I will, I want, I desire that those whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may see my glory. Jesus wants that for every single sheep that belongs to Him. They're saints. They're His. They're His sheep. He loves them. He died for them. Why would we, why would we think any other thing but other than the way Jesus thinks? Notwithstanding the sin and the struggles and, and the wretchedness that we still carry around us called the flesh, God looks at that and He sees His Son's blood And God is pleased with the work of His own Son. We should, as a corollary truth to the fact that our goodness does not extend to God, it's from God, but we extend it to one another. Not because we're so valuable, not because we're worthy, but because Jesus is worthy and He was raised from the dead because He loves His sheep. Can you say about the person that's in Christ, notwithstanding all that is still left to be purged from us, that those are my people. They are the noble in the earth. They are all my delight. And of course, we can't unless, like David, I have set the Lord always before me because He is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. May the Lord bless us to see Christ in His resurrection. Yes, for the forgiveness of sins. Yes, for our justification. But also as our refuge, our master. And see Him as our goodness. And may these things flow.
from that high view of Christ. Let's pray. 